Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS. I'm your host, Andre Pride. In today's podcast, my return guest is Karsten Gonserge, and he is going to tell us about the developments at the IFRS Interpretations Committee meeting on the 1st of February. So welcome back, Karsten. Glad to be back, Andrea. So Karsten, this was the first committee meeting of 2022, and the agenda was short, with topics that we've previously touched on. But nonetheless, there were a couple of issues discussed which we thought would be worth covering in this podcast today. There were three topics. There was a discussion on the wording of the tentative agenda decision relating to negative low or new energy vehicle credits, an education session on profit recognition for annuity contracts, and a discussion about the comment letters received and subsequent analysis on what they call the Tiltro transactions that had been carried over from the last meeting. So I'm going to take this in the order of the agenda. And the first topic was the last one I mentioned, the Tiltro transactions. And that obviously sounds very technical. And it relates to two standards that are sometimes seen as quite specialist. So that's IFRS 9 and IFRS 20. And even if these discussions are focused on banks, they do raise some broader questions for other industries as well. And they touch upon some quite fundamental questions around the accounting for government assistance and also the application of the effective interest rate more generally. You've previously told us about these transactions back in episode 111, which we issued in June 2021. And at this meeting, the IFRIC was considering comment letters on the tentative agenda decision and agreeing a way forward. So can we go right back to the beginning and could you give us a reminder about what the Tiltro transaction actually is, please? Sure. So targeted long-term refinancing operations, abbreviated TLTROs or Tiltros, refer to financing offered by the European Central Bank to credit institutions. The objective is for the ECB to offer funding to banks at borrowing conditions that are intended to stimulate bank lending. Now, these programs have been around for a while with the first and second series announced in 2014 and 2016, and the third series announced in 2019. This submission is about that third series of Tiltros called Tiltro 3. Thanks, Carsten. Can you remind us as to what was the change in this tranche of Tiltro, which was causing concern? Now, let me start by explaining in a bit more detail how the, how the third Tiltro program of the ECB works. Tiltro 3 consists of 10 quarterly tranches starting from September 2019, each with a maturity of three years. Now, during 2020 and 2021, some of the lending conditions were favorably modified to support the continued access of businesses and households to bank credit in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, at specific points in time during 2020 and 2021, the applicable interest rate was reduced by 50 basis points during a so-called special interest rate period. Banks are required to settle interest in arrears on each tranche at maturity or whenever there's an early repayment of a tranche. And where are the accounting complexities? The complexities in this program for the accounting arise as a consequence of how the respective interest rate is calculated. So the interest rate applicable to each tiltroll tranche is not simply fixed or floating, but instead depends on the bank achieving predefined lending thresholds in the specified reference periods. Now, for banks that do not achieve any of the lending th thresholds during the reference periods, the interest rate for each tranche is the average ECB interest rate on the main refinancing operations, or MRO rate. 
this this rate that applies if none of the lending co conditions are met is called the unconditional interest rate. However, during the special interest rate period that I mentioned earlier, the unconditional interest interest rate is reduced to 50 basis points below that average MRO rate. In contrast, for banks that achieve all of the lending thresholds during the reference periods, the interest rate is the average interest rate or the of the ECB's deposit facility or DFR rate. And similarly, during the special interest rate period, this interest rate is also reduced to by 50 basis points below that average DFR rate over the respective period. An additional complexity is the fact that in the case of TILT for three, the interest rate during certain lending periods is a negative rate. So at the due date, the bank would repay to the ECB an amount that is lower than the amount it received upon drawdown of a tranche. Now, I, I realize this is quite a bit of complexity. So to sum it up for our listeners, in simplified terms, essentially, this is a targeted ECB program for which the interest rate that applies for a participating bank is linked to the volume of loans the bank makes to non-financial corporations and households. Or in other words, the interest rate that applies to funding under this ECB program is linked to and calculated based on certain thresholds or KPIs that are related to the individual bank's lending activities. Okay, so, so far so good. But could you remind us now about the question that was raised by the submitter in relation to this program? Sure. So, so essentially the question that was raised by the submitter is how banks operating in Europe would account for the financing received under this ECB program. Whilst this is focusing on the, on the accounting by banks operating in Europe, my sense is that this submission is of broader interest also for other entities that, that receive financing from governments or government-related entities, as the submission highlights some broader fundamental questions about the interaction of IFRS 9 and IS 20. It has also brought up a number of issues around the application of the effective interest method, or EIR, in IFRS 9 more generally. And so a broader debate has been going on around those issues as well. So even if you're not too much interested in, in accounting issues specific to the banking industry, I think some of these discussions may sp still be relevant for you. Can you tell us about the accounting issues? So there are several accounting issues involved in the accounting for these programs. The first, quite fundamental question is whether the TILT 3 tranches represent loans at a below market interest rate, and if so, whether the bank would account for the benefit applying the financial instruments standard IFRS 9, or the guidance for government grants in IS 20. So, so that involves some questions that may sound relatively simple, but that, that are in fact rather tricky, as the discussion at the committee has shown. So these questions include some rather fundamental questions, such, such as, for example, whether the ECB would meet the definition of a government in IS-20, and how to determine what a market rate of interest is. There are also several other accounting questions involved. For example, how to account for government grant, if any, how to calculate the effective, the effective interest rate, and how to account for changes in probabilities with regards to the cash flows in a situation like this, where the interest rate varies over time and, and is contingent or dependent on the bank meeting certain lending thresholds. So what did the committee say? Now, for some of these quite fundamental questions, the committee felt that they are not in a position to opine on those. For example, the committee felt that they could not opine on whether the ECB is a government 
and whether these programs contain any government grant within the scope of IS-20. There was also quite a bit of debate at the committee whether we would be able to give constituents some guidance around the application of the effective interest method in these transactions. But at the end, the committee decided that they were also not in a position to, to opine on this. So the route on this topic is to address this as part of the IFRS 9 PIR rather than via an agenda decision. And finally, the committee also discussed whether they could provide guidance around the accounting for government assistance, if any, and in particular, whether the amount of any government assistance would be measured upon initial recognition only, or whether instead it might be possible to recognize any government assisted assistance subsequent to initial recognition of the loan. Or in other words, whether it would be acceptable to apply the guidance on forgivable loans in IS-20. Besides the discussions around the EIR, this was probably the most controversial area, and there was quite a bit of pushback in the comment letters on this. And again, also on that question, after some intense debate, the committee felt that this would involve judgment and that the committee would not be in a position to provide a clear answer on this aspect. So frankly, the committee felt that they were not in a position to clearly address the full scope of the questions asked by the submitter without amending or adding to existing requirements in IFRS. So because of this, some quite fundamental questions on this topic will remain unanswered at this time. However, there are a few aspects where the agenda decision would contain some guidance. For example, the agenda decision, if finalized by the board, would be clear that banks would, would need to start their analysis in IFRS 9, and only the government assistance, if any, would be in the scope of IS-20. Now, let me finish off with a personal remark. We didn't talk much about disclosures around this matter at the committee at all. However, I think people should certainly invest some time and think about applicable disclosure requirements in this regard. So personally, I think it's quite important for entities that are affected to make sure that they disclose clearly what they have done, including the judgments applied, so that users of financial statements can understand the implications on the entity's financial statements and their financial performance. Okay, so there's some issues there that we'll have to wait for further developments, possibly in the PIR. And as a reminder to our listeners, agenda decisions that the committee votes to finalise are preliminary, subject to board approval, and the official IFRIC update is generally available after that permission has been obtained at the next board meeting. Okay, Carsten, it sounds like this is a question on a very specific transaction that's you know fairly niche. Okay, so the next topic on the agenda was an ongoing discussion about negative low emission vehicle credits. And this was a topic that the committee previously discussed in December, and then it had a very long and engaged debate about whether a present obligation exists, which was in fact why the tilt discussion was pushed into this meeting. Um, so we covered this issue in some detail in our December podcast episode 121, and so I won't ask you to go over it all again. But in that December meeting, committee members had different views on the reasoning for its conclusion not to add a project onto the agenda. And this is why the issue is being discussed again. So can you tell us about this discussion and what the committee decided, please? Yeah, sure. So on a high level, this submission was asking whether particular measures to encourage reduction in vehicle carbon emissions give rise to obligations that meet the definition of a liability in IS-37. As you said, we covered this in December, so if you're interested in more details about the submission, I suggest you listen into in our recent podcast covering the December IFRIC meeting. 
So at the February meeting, the staff brought back some additional analysis and revisions to the proposed wording of the tentative agenda decision. And the committee had another discussion on this topic based on that. To be fair, this continued to be a quite a controversial debate. And I think the challenge with this submission is to explain clearly how this fact pattern is different from the so-called smoke filter example in IS-37 and the previous IFRIC interpretations, IFRIC 6 and IFRIC 21. So there was quite a bit of debate on whether the obligation would exist independently of the entity's future actions, which is one of the requirements in IS-37 to recognize a liability. So whilst this addresses quite a specific fact pattern, I, I think this matter is of broader interest as it touches upon some of the fundamental principles in IS-37 around when an obligation arises. So this could well be relevant when analyzing other fact patterns as well. So despite having discussed the matter already at the previous meeting, there was another engaged debate at the February meeting on this topic, focusing mostly on the exact reasoning for the tentative conclusion for this fact pattern. At the end, the committee voted to finalize the tentative agenda decision along the lines proposed by the staff with a few slight wording changes. So it's essentially the tentative agenda decision would say that entities typically would have a legal obligation that meets the definition of a liability in IS-37 in this fact pattern. However, there's a caveat that this might not be the case when accepting sanctions imposed by the government is a realistic alternative for a particular entity. But based on my understanding, that would likely be rare in practice in these fact patterns. And so typically a liability would need to be recognized. The other interesting bit is that the committee also noted that even when there's no legal obligation, that there may still be a, a constructive obligation. And the final comment I would make is that the tentative agenda decision does not at all address measurement of that obligation, as it was not part of the question that has been asked. So I suspect there will likely be quite a few interesting discussions around the measurement of that obligation in practice. Thank you, Karsten. I'm sure this won't be the last time that you have an engaged discussion on the application of IS-37 at the committee. So the last topic on the agenda was an education session, which don't occur that often. And this was on the accounting requirements in IFRS 17 insurance contracts, a topic very close to my heart. And in this occasion, the question was on the allocation of profit to profit and loss of insurance contracts. So could you tell us a bit about background to this session and how the session went? Yes, so, so this is quite exciting as it's the first time the committee will have to deal with an IFRS 17 question. As you said, this was an education session and so the committee was not asked to make any decision at this time. So an education session is a session that comes in advance of the discussion of the actual submission. So essentially to prepare the committee for an upcoming submission that is on the committee's forward pipeline. The reason why it makes sense to have an education session is that IFRS 17 is a new standard that is not yet effective. And so there's limited practical experience on the application of IFRS 17. So for that reason, the committee was getting an education session from the staff to allow committee members to ask questions and prepare the committee to answer the actual question that is being asked in the submission in due course. So, the actual submission is broadly around the timing of profit recognition for life annuity contracts, contracts, 
which is a question that is essentially only relevant for insurance companies, which doesn't mean that it's not an important question, as the implications can be quite material for those entities affected. However, as this was a purely educational session, I suggest we don't go into the details of the actual submission at this time. So I guess dealing with a submission on a completely new standard also raises some interesting due process issues, such as how to consider if a matter is widespread when the standard has not yet, not, has not yet been applied by anyone. Anyway, I think this is going to be an interesting discussion, and I'm really looking forward to look into this topic in one of the next IFRIC meetings. Thank you, Karsten. It's good for people to start thinking about this in advance of actually having to make the decisions. So finally, there was also another exciting announcement last week, and the announcement was that Sue Lloyd, the chair of the IFRS Interpretations Committee, has now been appointed as the vice chair to the new International Sustainability Standards Board, and that's going to be effective from the 1st of March. So does that mean that this was her last meeting? Fortunately, this was not her last meeting. So as you said, Sue will take on the on her new role as vice chair of the new IWSB on 1st of March. So before the next IFRIC meeting, and I think we can expect that the new chair of the IFRS Interpretations Committee will be appointed before the March IFRIC meeting. However, despite her new role, Sue, Sue promised she would still be around at the March IFRIC meeting to ensure a smooth handover to the new chair. The trustees are currently in the process of selecting her successor, so we will have to wait for this to be announced. But I understand the new chair of the committee will again be a current board member, which is helpful to ensure the continued connectivity between the board and the committee. So I think Sue has, has been such a great chair for the committee. Um, the way she coordinates the committee's work is not always easy, but I think she has done a fantastic job despite her double-headed role being also the ISB vice chair. I think she's, she's just very professional, very inclusive, while it's bringing together people with quite diverse backgrounds and helping to build consensus at the committee where possible. She's always asking the right questions, encouraging and ensuring independence of views, whilst making sure everyone is heard. And at the same, same time, she's also a very you know, friendly, um, easy, humorous and empathetic person. So, so I have to say, I will definitely miss her. But at the same time, of course, I wish her all the best for a new role. I'm 100% sure she will be a great asset to the IWSB and the great vice chair, as she has been for the ISB. So whilst we will definitely miss her at the committee, with her background and experience, I completely understand why the trustees have asked her to be the vice chair of the IWSB. And the new board is certainly lucky to have her in that role. That's great, Karsten. And I think it's good that she'll continue to be involved with the IFRS Foundation in another capacity. So, so that's good news, at least. And I guess that this appointment means that Sue will, unfortunately for her, be missing out on most of the discussion around the amortisation pattern for annuity contracts that you mentioned, as well as the other projects on the IFRIX forward pipeline, including the two questions on SPACs and one on rent concessions that was posted there at the moment but we will still be here and hopefully you will come back and give us an update after the March meeting which will be Sue's last meeting there. In the meantime Karsten thank you for joining us on this podcast again and sharing your insights as always and to all our listeners thank you as always for listening stay safe and happy accounting. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.
preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Thank you.